Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The drumbeat of people being unlawfully killed by police officers continues. Not even the mass protests of 2020 could push Congress to enact federal legislation banning chokeholds or no-knock warrants. But why does reform remain so difficult? Joanna Schwartz, a law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, has devoted more than two decades to analyzing how our legal system protects the police at every level, from the Supreme Court to municipal governments. Her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, details the dozens of ways in which civil rights plaintiffs, no matter their tax bracket, race, or zip code, can be thwarted, from the difficulties of acquiring a lawyer to the controversial doctrine of qualified immunity, all designed to protect police officers from personal liability and governments from paying up. Joanna Schwartz joins us from Los Angeles to talk about how the system got so twisted. Thanks for talking to me, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me on. How did you first clue into the difficulties of holding police accountable and and figure out that you really wanted to write a whole book about it? Well, I first came face to face with some of these difficulties as a civil rights lawyer uh, in the early 2000s when I was bringing cases against law enforcement officers and law enforcement agencies. I really spent a lot of time thinking as a lawyer about what impact these cases were really having. They were extremely important to our clients and they were important to me. I went into civil rights litigation with the goal of making a difference. And yet I saw people being egregiously violated again and again and felt like the system really wasn't responding um, to these cases in the way that I wished they would. So when I became a law professor, my focus really was on many of the questions that I started posing to myself as a practicing lawyer about what barriers there are to relief in these cases and whether those barriers actually are merited, um, whether the Supreme Court's justifications for all of the various kinds of protections that they've created really should be there. So that's where I started doing my own research, really taking the Supreme Court at its word about what the court thought lawsuits should do, and then testing to see whether they actually accomplished those goals. And one empirical project led to another empirical project, and next thing you know, it was 15 years worth of research about these questions. And then when George Floyd was murdered in May 2020, a lot of these ideas that had been of interest to me and a small circle of other academics and civil rights lawyers, of course, became something that people were talking about that had taken over the national conversation. Yeah, I mean, all the cases that you describe in the book are really egregious. And every time a new chapter started and a new case came, I was like, oh, God, (laughs) this is going to be hard. And I think the really heartbreaking thing, too, is I haven't heard of any of these people, you know, and I have heard, of course, of George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, all the ones that make the news, which are also frustrating and difficult and infuriating. But in those cases, a lot of the time people do see at least some form of justice, like whether you really think it's justice is up for debate, but they get something. Whereas like a lot of the people in these cases that you talk about don't, like what's the difference? Right, my goal in this 
book was to try to tell some of these stories and to make the barriers to relief come to light with stories of real people and people whose stories haven't been heard before. When George Floyd was murdered, uh, there was a national and international outcry. People were watching that video hundreds of times and taking to the streets to, to protest and legislators were taking action and there was so much national attention. But more than a thousand people are killed by police every year. Hundreds of thousands of people believe that they're mistreated by the police every year. And there aren't always videos. There isn't always public outcry, even when there are videos. So these events that the public has heard of really only reflect the very tip of the iceberg. And those cases also aren't representative in the way in which they're treated by the courts. George Floyd's family received $27 million uh, from the city of Minneapolis before they filed a lawsuit. That would not happen for a person who had had something similar happen, but simply didn't have the same kind of public attention paid. And as evidence of that, there are people who have died around the country with police officers' knees to their necks and their backs who have had their cases dismissed by courts and have received nothing. Cases that we don't have video for, but sound in description very, very much like what happened to George Floyd. And so it was important to me to tell the stories of people whose stories hadn't been told before. I guess one of the big questions I have reading your book is it you detail just how difficult it is to even get an attorney. That's like step one for suing in a civil rights case. Less than 1% of such cases even make their way to court. And then the ones that do get to court have to be likable. A judge has to find them sympathetic. There's all these other hurdles, hurdle after hurdle. And then if you do get to court, the payment usually comes from the city a lot of the cities that have paid out, even in those famous cases, continue to have issues with holding the police accountable, with police brutality. So why should we even be taking things to the court? Like, why is this our arena of debating police accountability? Well, one reason why it's important to keep thinking about the courts, even though the system is very broken, is that it is really the place of last resort for people to go when their rights have been violated. When you talk to family members or people who themselves have been mistreated or abused by the police, they often say they want to be made whole. They want some remedy and they want the police not to do something like this again. And in our system, there's really only three kinds of paths forward for an individual to take in that situation. One is to push for criminal prosecution, uh, although officers are very rarely prosecuted, slightly less rarely than in years past. But even when people are killed by police, it's only a very small percentage of cases that are prosecuted and an even smaller percentage where there's a conviction as a result. Uh, and there's a separate question about whether the answer to this problem that we have is to throw police officers in jail. But even putting that to one side, it's not a very likely thing to happen. Another option is police discipline. Police departments could themselves investigate and discipline officers. That happens really rarely as well. 
And what you're really left with as a third option is a civil suit against the police officer or the department seeking some sort of compensation or a court order that the department change their behavior. And that's really the only one of those options where the person whose rights have been violated themselves can bring the case forward. They're not reliant on the prosecutor or on the internal disciplinary process. They can bring the case themselves. Now, there's also another realm of advocacy moving forward, which is protest, legislative advocacy, all sorts of rethinking moving forward about what we authorize the police to do and uh, what kind of training they should receive and all of these questions that are also very important. But if you're thinking about a person whose rights have been violated and what they can do, a civil lawsuit is really one of their best and only avenues. And I think it's really important to get that system working as well as it can. Yeah, I mean, I think the story of how people even won the opportunity to bring their cases to federal court is a really interesting one and sort of reveals some pretty dark parallels within American history. So can you can you talk a little bit about why it is that these cases are brought to the Supreme Court, sometimes just federal court, and not, you know, state or city courts? Absolutely. So the right to sue government officials, including police officers, for violations of the United States Constitution uh, is a right that comes from a statute that actually was enacted in the Reconstruction following the Civil War. It was uh, referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 or the Civil Rights Act of 1871. And it was passed because there were white supremacist groups, including the Ku Klux Klan, that were going around raping and killing and terrifying Black people in the South, particularly, and law enforcement officers were either participating in the violence or standing idly by and doing nothing to stop it. And at that time, state courts were a really hostile place uh, to go to vindicate your rights uh, as a Black person. Many states didn't even allow Black people to testify. So the idea that you could go to a local court and try to bring a case against a police officer from that same jurisdiction. It was it was a hopeless enterprise. And so Congress created this right to sue in federal court because the idea was that federal courts were going to be more protective of these constitutional rights than state courts would. Uh, interestingly, very quickly after that right was created, it essentially went dormant because the Supreme Court interpreted a series of laws that were passed during the Reconstruction, as well as the 14th Amendment to the Constitution in these ways that made it basically impossible to bring these kinds of cases. But then in 1961, sort of as the civil rights movement was picking up steam and the Supreme Court was getting into the business of of protecting constitutional rights and seeing the role of federal government as important, once again, in protecting against government violence and government violence against Black people particularly, the Supreme Court ruled in 1961 that uh, people could use this Reconstruction Era statute uh, to sue government officials for constitutional violations. And that was a case where officers in Chicago had broken into a family home uh, without a warrant and did some really horrible things. 
Uh, and the Supreme Court said, yes, this is the kind of case that you can bring under Section 1983. And again, at the time, the very lawyer who brought that case, Monroe versus Pape, was saying many of the same things that Congress in 1871 was saying, that you couldn't bring this kind of case in state court. You weren't going to get relief in state court. We need federal court. Um, interestingly, now fast forward 60 years, and thanks to the Supreme Court, the federal court's sort of interpretation of Section 1983 has made it so hard to succeed in these cases that states are now passing laws that make it easier to bring these kinds of claims in state court. So what was originally created as a federal remedy when state courts were hostile to civil rights has now become a situation where state courts and state legislatures are trying to create a remedy because the federal system is so hostile. How did that happen? You know, because it took if it took 100 years to actually implement Section 1983, why does the door start swinging shut? Like, how does that reversal happen? My argument and belief is that powerful forces, and really you can see them in 1871, in the years after 1871, and you can see them in the years after 1961, and frankly, you can see them now in the years after George Floyd's murder had revitalized civil rights efforts. There is a real uh, push against these advances or attempted advances. And they are explicitly motivated by concerns about too much justice. The, the <laughs> kinds of arguments that you hear, and I actually, I just testified before the Washington state legislature about a state law that would um, basically create a right to sue without qualified immunity. And you hear the same kinds of arguments that were raised in the 60s uh, and were raised, you know, in the late 19th century about frivolous lawsuits flooding the courts, about officers uh, being bankrupted by lawsuits, about local governments being bankrupted by lawsuits, causing officers to be too uh, concerned about being sued to actually do their job vigorously or people just deciding not to become police officers at all. And these are arguments that have been made for well over a hundred years in various forms. There is no evidence to support these claims. And that's in what I have spent a lot of my time as an academic trying to research and have found that there really is no basis for these claims, but they are so powerful. And I think they're powerful because they're scary the idea that no one would agree to become a police officer and we would essentially, you know, be in, you know, an anarchy um, is a very scary thing for a legislature to consider, for a court to consider. And so those concerns have really motivated, I think, and driven courts and legislatures and local governments to make it harder to sue and harder to win a meaningful victory in these cases. Mm, yeah, America, famously a place of too much justice. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, um, to me at least, but I think it would be worth spelling out some of the obstacles that are ahead if you do choose to pursue this route. Qualified immunity is often used as kind of a shorthand for the difficulty of holding the police accountable. Um, maybe you could define what qualified immunity is, but then also talk about what else is there, because there is a lot standing in your way. 
Absolutely. And I agree. Qualified immunity has really come to play such a large role in our conversation about police accountability. I think because it's a frightening phrase, this idea that that government could be immune um, from responsibility is is an idea that I think really captured people's attention. But it is important to be precise about what it is and what it isn't and and what the whole uh, sort of web of barriers are. Qualified immunity is a legal protection for officers in a civil case. It has nothing to do with criminal prosecutions. It's only civil cases where people are suing for money damages. And as a defense that the Supreme Court created that has shifted in shape over time, but today what it provides is that an officer can't be held liable for money damages, even if they have violated the Constitution, if they haven't violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. The definition of clearly established law has changed over time, but reading the court's opinions, it's pretty clear that It almost always requires a prior court decision, either from the Supreme Court itself or from the Court of Appeals where the case is being heard. And that prior case has to have ruled that such similar conduct was unconstitutional that every officer would know that what they were doing was violating the law. What this comes to mean in practice is that even unconstitutional behavior that seems obviously unconstitutional can be protected by qualified immunity simply because there's not a prior court case with virtually identical facts. And the example that I spend a lot of time thinking about is a case brought by a man named Alexander Baxter, who was burglarizing a home and, uh, he was caught uh, and sort of in the basement of another home. He surrendered and he put his hands in the air. And uh, police officers nevertheless released their police dog on him. And that dog attacked him um, and ripped a hole in, under his arm because he had his hands raised in the air. When he brought his lawsuit, it was dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. And it's clear, well-established in the Supreme Court and in circuit courts that you cannot use force against someone who has surrendered. That is just a common principle. But in this case, there was not a prior court decision that had similar facts. There was actually a prior case where a person had surrendered by lying down and, and dogs had been sicked on this person. And in that case, the court had said it was clearly established and denied qualified immunity. But the court hearing Alexander Baxter's case said the distinctions between those cases, one with a person lying down in surrender and one sitting with their hands in the air in surrender, was enough to mean that the law was not clearly established. And I could go on. There's many other examples of officers getting qualified immunity for doing egregious things. And I think that the egregiousness of those facts are part of the reason that qualified immunity has taken on such a powerful role in our society. But you're right, there are many other barriers to relief in these cases. As you mentioned earlier, the first challenge is simply finding a lawyer. And 
given sort of the view of people in society about there being too many lawyers, it might be a surprise to think that there would be a hard time finding a lawyer. But these are cases where lawyers are paid nothing unless the plaintiff wins. And then if the plaintiff wins, they receive usually a third of the the recovery through a settlement. And those financial arrangements end up meaning that lawyers don't tend to take these cases unless there's really significant damages at stake or, or, and I should say, the client is someone who is going to be very sympathetic to a judge and jury and someone for whom they anticipate, for example, being able to get past the barriers of qualified immunity. It is often the case that people who have suffered egregious wrongs aren't able to find lawyers because they don't meet those categories. Alexander Baxter, assaulted by a police dog with his hands in the air, he wasn't able to find a lawyer to bring his case. He had to bring it himself. Why? Because he was arrested for burglary and he was sitting in jail at the time that he had to file his case. He wrote to dozens of lawyers and no one would agree to represent him. His cases ended up becoming a symbol of all that's wrong with qualified immunity doctrine and of an egregious injustice that happened to him. He wasn't able to find a lawyer. So many people have trouble finding lawyers. And then once they find a lawyer, they have to draft a complaint that starts the case. And the Supreme Court's rules about drafting complaints means you sometimes, you often have to know the facts underlying the case before you can even get started. Sometimes that's not a problem. It wasn't a problem for Alexander Baxter, but it can be a problem if you don't know all of the facts, if your loved one has died and you don't know the circumstances of their death, it can be very hard to meet that standard. Then there's proving a constitutional violation, um, which the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution is in very deferential ways to law enforcement. There comes qualified immunity. There's challenges uh, succeeding against local governments, even when their officers have been involved in pretty heinous misconduct. And then even when you get to a jury, you the way in which juries are selected can often remove people from the jury pool who would be most sympathetic in these cases. So there are a lot of barriers to relief. And, you know, there's, there's even a few extra that I'm, that I'm leaving out. So, uh, <laughs> so people don't get too terribly depressed, uh, listening to this, but, um, there are a lot of barriers to relief in these cases. There are so many, and it just seems so hopeless in some ways. And just so like we've, we've strayed so far, but it all is not lost. Uh, and although, <laughs> Although Monroe v. Pape occurred in like the brief blip of the Warren court, some have said that we're in a similar moment today, not necessarily with the Supreme Court, clearly not, but, uh, you know, societally with these other sort of extra legal pressures on the government to make changes. Yeah, a couple things. One is I want to emphasize that the system, in my view, as it stands, is horribly dysfunctional and does deny justice to a lot of people. But 
it is also a system that people rely upon still today and use. I, I teach a course for law students that covers some of this same material. And it's always important to strike a balance here because some students reading all of this think, oh my gosh, I'm just going to go into family law or like, <laughs> you know, corporate law or something. This is too hard. These, these cases are too hard. And I always bring in lawyers to talk to the students to say, hey, I'm bringing these cases. Yeah, this, the doctrine's really hard. Yes, there's lots of barriers, but there are still paths forward and they're meaningful paths and important gains that are gotten. So the system as it functions right now is is not how it should function, I don't believe, but it does still manage to produce just outcomes sometimes. With all that said, the, the Supreme Court particularly and the federal system more generally has had so many restrictions in recent years that there is more attention that's being put on state level reforms. And there's some really exciting things happening in various uh, states around the country, reforms to doctrines like qualified immunity, but also other protections, other uh, bright line rules that are being implemented to prevent, for example, police shooting into cars or using chokeholds or no-knock warrants. Uh, and there are even cities that are considering limiting the kind of authority that police have to stop people for simple traffic violations, for example. There's a lot of really creative, interesting work that's being done, particularly in the states and local governments. The dangers of state, of, of relying on the states, is that not every state is going to be interested in these kinds of reforms. And you may end up having essentially constitutional rights protected in some parts of the country and not others, um, which is certainly not what the 1871 Congress had in mind when it uh, first passed in 1983. I mean, you make very clear in the book that there's no silver bullet for holding the police accountable in this way, for civil rights violations, for brutality. What do you think it'll take? Well, I had thought that the murder of George Floyd in May 2020 might actually lead to some lasting reforms. And it has led. There have been important reforms that have been enacted and advancements that have been made. But I, I do think that it is those kinds of horrifying and tragic moments that sometimes are what's necessary to capture people's attention and to get uh, some sort of uh, movement forward. I would much prefer those events never to occur. Um, but I, I do think that they are important inflection points, and they have been throughout history. When Rodney King was assaulted, that, you know, that ended up leading to laws that allowed the Department of Justice to start investigating uh, police departments. And you know, obviously other riots and rebellions have, have had similar um, impacts, long-lasting impacts. But one thing that I've seen in the years since George Floyd's murder, as some of these bills and efforts have been making their way through the court, is that our society and our conversation so quickly returns back to old talking points and concerns about too much justice and concerns about frivolous lawsuits. And I guess Part of my 
naive, perhaps, hope has been if we could actually get some of this information out and available, people could actually understand how the system worked, that the wind behind the sails of these sort of overblown arguments could die down and we could actually, in a, you know, in a moment of shared understanding of how the system works, agree about how we can fix it. I don't know if that will happen, but I think that's what needs to happen. I think we need to get past the politicking and past overblown claims and probably past, you know, 280 character broadsides back and forth and really come to a shared understanding of what the system is. I hope so. I think the problem too is that it it takes a really long time to pass laws, it seems, when it has to do with affirming people's civil rights, when it has to do with taking them away with like Patriot Acts, for example. Things really move quickly. But, <laughs> you know, like it just took forever for a lot of this stuff to move its way through legislatures. It's true. And one of the very best bills, in fact, the you know, what I would consider the, the gold standard in state efforts uh, was enacted in Colorado, and it was enacted in June 2020. So essentially, this was a bill that had been introduced by um, Leslie Harrod, who's a, a state representative there, and it had gone down in flames in the earlier months of 2020. And then following the murder of George Floyd, they took the bill off the shelf and reintroduced it, and it was passed within a month. And there is some sense in which moving quickly in these moments where there is attention captured on these issues is really important. And the bills that have been introduced subsequently have not had the same kind of success. And I do wonder whether that's a point about timing and about acting in crisis. And uh, there was a feeling after George Floyd's murder that something needed to be done, that everyone needed to do something. And that kind of urgency, unfortunately, has really gone away. We have links in the show notes to Joanna Schwartz's new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. There is a lot of data and a lot of writing out there about the various ways in which the police slip from the clutches of justice. I've linked to some of that, but there would be no way to link to it all unless I also wrote a book. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>